So right before Influence Ecology, it was actually, I think, what, what really prompted me to, to sign up uh, in the first place. I was extremely naive. So I was exactly that person you talked about. I had these big goals and, oh my God, I'm going to achieve these amazing things. And it's, it's just, people are going to find it irresistible and it's fantastic. And, oh my God, like that is where I'm headed. And then I had no way of getting there. And I don't mean the specific strategic plan. I mean the mindset and the roadmap for actually figuring out how one goes from point A to point B, which sounds really simple, but it's a lot harder than you think. So I was spinning my wheels and I was really naive to my lack of understanding of what I was even saying. I mean, what I was saying wasn't even realistic. It was based on absolutely, I pulled it out of my butt every single time. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not just at work, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview today is with Tamara Kleinberg about the many struggles entrepreneurs have in navigating the two worlds of optimism and reality. You'll hear how seductive goals, big plans, and quick wins is not how successful and ambitious professionals build a surplus of wealth, free time, and certainty. Tomorrow calls herself an innovation enabler and is the founder of The Shook, an online testing ground for new products. She is a sought-after keynote speaker and author on innovation and entrepreneurship, has run multi-million dollar businesses, and launched a few of her own. We'll also listen in on a webinar where co-founder Kirkland Tibbles talks on the subject of what we call state of mind, and in particular, how you and I evidence in our transactions our state of mind to other people. There are four states of mind, and in this talk, we'll hear Kirkland talk about the state of mind we call naivete. All right, Tamara, well, welcome. I'm so happy to be here, John. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Why don't you take a sec and introduce yourself if there's anything else you'd like to say about what you've been doing and, and who you are? Yeah, well, I think I'll just keep you with me every time I go keynote and you can introduce me because I think you do a better job <laughs> than I probably do. But, you know, I'll just fill in the gaps and say that I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I've been in innovation for 20 plus years. I've launched products. If you walk down the aisles of Target, you'll see some of the products that I've had a hand in between Clorox and General Mills and Procter & Gamble. But my real passion, my real heart is with the entrepreneur and with the innovator, which is where a lot of my work focuses now. And I have been in Influence Ecology, oh, I don't know how many years now, three years. I started at FOT and then went to MAP and now I'm in membership. I strive to steep myself in it daily because it's made such a big impact. So a thank you back to you before we get started. You're welcome. Well, thanks for joining us many years ago. What intrigued me about doing an interview with you is I saw the work with Entrepreneur on Fire video that you launched. And in that article that I read. And I believe that was an article that you also posted on Huffington Post. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm a regular contributor on Huffington Post. So basically, just a little bit of the backstory is I really wanted to get on Entrepreneur on Fire. You know how I think we all have these in our category, that one, particularly in the media, that one thing that if you could get on, it would help you reach your target audience, help you get more business. And that was that kind of shining star in my world. But I knew that he had over 300 submissions every month to get on his podcast. What's 300 times 12? Well, is that 3,600? So that's 3,600 submissions a year for a daily podcast. So I think we can all do the math. Yeah. That means that most of the people do not get on. And I knew that I had to think 
very strategically and transact very powerfully to be accepted and to stand out among all those submissions. So I did things a little bit differently. I thought through where he was versus where I was so that I could start in the right place. And I got on. So we tape in November and then I think it airs in January. I'll know the details later. But the reason I posted on Huffington Post is because I wanted to share with my community, which is a community of entrepreneurs, I wanted to pull back the curtain and show people that, hey, if you actually take a pause, think through what's actually happening in that person's world and come at it from a different perspective, you have a much greater chance of actually getting to what you're trying to accomplish. Well, that's really great. Well, it's it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because it was a demonstration of transactional competence and I could see a lot that you were up to in the work that you did there and what I saw in the video as well. So let's take a second and just talk about the Huffington Post because you're a writer for that as well. Yeah. Tell me about that. Huffington Post adds a ton of credibility for me as a keynote speaker. I wanted it in my bio. I knew it was important and I knew it was a platform where I could get my message out. So I looked on, I couldn't figure out how to submit to be on Huffington Post. And you know, it's all these different channels and your emails go into the tech void. If you're lucky, you get a response back. So I thought to myself, hmm, who's the one person that could help me actually get on and have some influence in this world? When I boiled it down, it was Ariana herself. I figured out how to contact her. And uh, because I have relationships with people who were willing to kind of open up their black book and share that with me. And then I sent her an email that was full of the transaction cycle and met her where she was and said, hey, I'd, I'd love to be a contributor. Here's what I blog about. If it's of value to you, I'd like to further the conversation. John, I was so surprised. I got an email back within 24 hours saying, absolutely, here's your editor can't wait to have you on the Huffington Post. It was one of those moments where you go, oh, all that hard work, it finally paid off. <laughs> That's very good. For listeners who don't know, can you tell our audience about Ariana Huffington and the Huffington Post? So HuffingtonPost.com is the largest media platform in the world. And it is a congregation of news and blogs and advice. And it, it actually changed the game in the industry because when they launched, it was all about news. You know, people would hold the news content and then they would pump it out to the public. This is the other way around. This aggregates from contributors and then pumps it out. So Ariana is a game changer in her world um, and in the media world. She is the founder of the company. She grew it to a billions of dollars worth of value. Actually, she recently left to go start a whole sleep and wellness this platform because she's very passionate about that. She is that CEO that we all kind of look up to and go, oh, that person's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. All right. So let's go back to centers of influence for just a moment, because I think that is a particular tactic that you quite often deployed. Tell us a little bit about, especially given what we teach, what it might look like to identify a center of influence, reach out to that person and end constructed transaction to engage that person, to have that person accept your invitation? What might that look like? It's one of those things that I wish I could answer in one moment, but I think it was a lot, it was a lot of little moments that led up to someone being willing to say absolutely. And, and I'm going to start at the end and kind of work backwards. I knew I had reached that moment when I would send out emails or pick up the phone to call someone who is an authority in their field or considered a thought leader in their field and they would pick up the phone or they would email me back and with my request saying absolutely Tamara here's what here's what you need it was really gratifying to know that I'd gotten to that place but it didn't happen overnight I didn't just email those people out of nowhere and I think that it really started with in fact I remember being in Ohio a couple of years ago and us talking about it and me thinking wow, like shame on me. I really was looking for these shortcuts. I felt like, John, I should be able to call you and just be like, hey, John, can you connect me to so-and-so because I'm worth it. Mm. And you won't get anywhere when you do that. So I had to really back up and say, wait a minute. First of all, what are those communities and centers I want to be in that I can bring value to and can bring value to me? We can have a long-term relationship. So I used to think, well, you should know who I am. I'm amazing. Like you should just do whatever I say, but it's, it's not how it works. And you know that. So I, I got very strategic about who I wanted to build those relationships with. And I, I made time to make that happen. And once I started doing that, when those requests, those things that I wanted, like, can you connect me to Ariana Huffington or can you help me get onto Entrepreneur on Fire? 
when I wanted those things, the doors opened very easily. But it was months, if not years of work leading up to that. Now I go into it with, is this the right person for me to build a relationship with? And can I provide something of value to them in return? And if that's the case, then this is going to work really well in the long run. There is nothing worse. And we hear this all the time, but we don't really internalize it. There is nothing worse than someone calling you and saying, can I pick your brain about something? Because all you hear is, oh, so you want to suck me dry of all the things that I know and all the experiences I've had and give nothing in return. And I used to do that all the time. How sad is that? I would always do that. And I stopped because it's, you know what, you're not feeding anyone's ego, you're annoying them. When I think about centers of influence, I have a lot of them now and I have a lot of authority in that area, but it's because I've built it over time. It's work and I value those people and they value me, but it's because I took the effort to make it happen. For people who are at the beginning of that journey, as we teach it, when we talk about a center of influence, we we often talk about building and expanding your influence ecologies. And what that means is basically you look over into a specific ecology that you'd like to tap into in some way, shape, or form. You identify the center of influence in that area, and then you construct transactions to engage that person in some way, shape, or form, right? So for someone who is just learning that for the first time, but hasn't yet built the authority that you talked about having built for years and years. Any advice to the person who's just starting that journey and beginning to identify those centers of influence or uh, what they might do, how they might go about that? I'm going to refer back to some notes that I have in a journal from a couple of years ago from one of the webinars you had. So there's three things that I would say that I would be very mindful of when you're starting that journey for center of influence. So one is be strategic about what ecologies you actually want to be in. What I found was that I was spending way too much time and effort in ecologies that I wasn't serving and that weren't going to serve me. They weren't going to elevate my game. They weren't going to get me to the next level. I was never going to be able to provide the value I wanted to provide, and they weren't going to provide it to me. So I actually had to shed a bunch of those relationships. That was step number one, because then I had room to be strategic and find those ecologies that I could be a part of that helped me meet my chief aims and that I could provide value to. And I'll give you just a very small example. I decided recently that one of the things I wanted to do was I want to get to a certain point in my business and I wanted to achieve hockey stick growth. I have a bunch of baggage around the the language around hockey stick growth. And we can go into that, into the whole naiveness around that whole concept in a minute. Sure. But what I wanted was I wanted to understand scalability. So I decided that the ecology I was going to be in was the people that were in this million dollar club because in my speakers association, because they've done it. The only way to get to a million dollars as a speaker is to figure out how to scale your knowledge. So I started calling these people. Now I built relationships with them over time, but I got very strategic about wanting to be in relationships and the ecology with those people. That's an example, in my opinion, of being really strategic about it. And it may not be a dollar value. It can be a type of person that's achieved something or people headed in the same direction. But I think you got to be really strategic about who you're going after. So that's number one. I'd say number two is don't pretend that you're not a beginner if you're going to tap into that and they're at the level greater than you. There's nothing more frustrating, in my opinion, than when I meet someone and out of their mouth before anything is this bombastic language about how amazing they are and how much they've accomplished. You know, one thing I've learned over time as I grow into these these ecologies is it's the person that says the least that's done the most. Yeah. So if you come in with this whole, I'm so amazing, people know, they see it, nobody's fooled. It's okay, just be a beginner and just know the third thing, which I'd say is you bring value and you bring knowledge and it's going to be something outside that you're bringing to this group. Balance those two things. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about your journey because you've got so many great tips and lessons for all of us. And I loved reading uh, some of the notes that you sent me because I identify so much with it. John, you and I have a lot in common. I know. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe it's the inventor disease, I guess. That's right. I think it's an opportunity for us to talk about inventors, and I don't mean those who invent. I mean the personality that we call inventor. And for those of you that don't know what that means, it just simply is a transactional behavior. You and I are idea people. We could say it that way. So we're the idea people in a transaction. Famous inventors might be uh, Steve Jobs, or they're, they're all over the place. There are also 
many, many serial entrepreneurs that are classic inventors and the like. And I thought we could really speak to the, the classic serial entrepreneur in your journey because there's a lot of great stuff here from the big goals, the big plans, the big dreams, seductive things. It was as if in reading your, you know, what you said to me, I can hear the journey through that kind of let me excite you with the big and juicy, sexy words I use because, wow, if you just, li-, you know, that kind of thing. And I've come to learn what that sounds like to other people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're so, like, lacking in self-awareness sometimes. We don't even realize how other people yeah, receive that. it's really painful. Tell us a little bit about your, your life before Influence Ecology, that journey, and get us to the point where you you started studying here and what did you discover so life before influence ecology and what did you discover when you started so right before influence ecology it was actually i think what what really prompted me to to sign up uh in the first place i was extremely naive so i was exactly that person you talked about i had these big goals and oh my god i'm going to achieve these amazing things and it's it's just people are going to find it irresistible and it's fantastic and oh my god like that is where i'm headed and then i had no way of getting there and i don't mean the specific strategic plan i mean the mindset and the roadmap for actually figuring out how one goes from point a to point b which sounds really simple, but it's a lot harder than you think. So I was spinning my wheels and I was really naive to my lack of understanding of what I was even saying. I mean, what I was saying wasn't even realistic. It was based on absolutely, I pulled it out of my butt every single time, but it sounded really good in my head or I heard somebody else say it. So that was a goal I needed. And I was going from point A to to Z with nothing in between. And People got really excited to work with me out of the gate and then things would falter and I'd find people would leave. I couldn't keep people. And I think that was because I sounded really good. They're like, yes, but then once you pulled back the layers of the onion, it kind of stunk. I didn't know what I was doing and I was in a lot of deep denial about the things I didn't understand and I didn't want to face that were greatly impacting my world. I understand that you had accomplished a lot, yet the naivete was you're right. I mean, I didn't point out that I'd run a multi-million dollar consulting firm. In fact, I doubled that company's revenues. I had launched successful entrepreneurial businesses, but I also capped out. I think I'd gotten to a place where I, I couldn't get to the next level, even though my language and my goals were at that next level. In my mind, I was spiraling because I just I couldn't get there. I had planted a couple trees and they had grown really well, but I hadn't created the forest that I'd intended. Mm. So here's my most embarrassing moment, but I think it really highlights the position I was in. I think this is about six months into influence ecology. So I had insomnia at two o'clock in the morning and I was up, you know, stressing out and staring at the ceiling and angry that I was still awake. And I was stressed out because I had no money. In fact, I was about to go into debt. Plus I had all these bills to pay and I was really stressing out, but it actually wasn't It wasn't just that moment that stressed me out because I think as entrepreneurs, a lot of us have that where we put all this effort into it, it's on the line and we hit that trough before things start to work for us. So one night of insomnia over time when I've gone for it is one thing, but this was not the first time. This was the 10th time that I'd been in this place. What kept me up at two o'clock in the morning was a realization that I I was in a pattern. And my pattern was basically this. I was really good at making money. I could make money all day long, but I couldn't keep it. It was as if every time I made money, it was already allocated to something or just like slipped through my fingers. Poof, gone. I had to come to this realization that I was really naive around money. And I couldn't understand why people who made a lot less than me had more money. Like how how could they afford that vacation? I don't get it. But they had financial intelligence and I didn't. I was really naive to my problem and how that was holding me back from scaling my business and growing to the next level. And because on the surface I had success, but I wasn't where I wanted to be. That next morning I got up, I bought a bunch of books and I signed up for a bunch of courses and I turned it around and I had to work at it. But when I think back to that story, I just think, oh, it is so amazing how we get in our own way and let our own denial naiveness keep us from that success that we want. And it's really embarrassing for me to admit that story. but. You know, to me, it's a great example of when you really understand the discipline and the rigor 
you can balance that with the optimism and still have goals that excite you, but understand what you need to do and what you need to know to actually get there. These two worlds, optimism or possibility and reality, as I listen to people talk and as I pay attention to the marketplace, there seems to be an either or sort of approach right. as opposed to a both. And I'm just interested in finding out about your journey to discover both, and it, it sounds like you have. Any stories about that or any lessons about discovering the importance of both? Well, I think you said it absolutely correct, which is we think of them as mutually exclusive. You're either this optimist and everything's possible, or you're super disciplined and it's rigor and it's what's right in front of you. And what I actually discovered is they're actually not mutually exclusive. Having that discipline and that rigor actually reinforces the optimism because you will start to see the results. And that's what I was missing in the past is I was all optimism. So like you, I am all possibility. In the past, if you'd called me up and said, tomorrow I have this great opportunity, it's so amazing. And here's how it's gonna work. I'd be like, yay, I'm on board. Now I understand that, hold on, let's back up and let's add some reality thinking to this. If you'd like to decode the mysteries of an ambitious life, you can register for the Influence Ecology webinar called Ambitious Living, the Eight Defining Principles. This free one-hour webinar offers eight principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. To give you a taste, here's one of the principles. It's called accurate thinking. The essential idea is this. You and I are always transacting to produce a better income, influential identity, and satisfying work. These situations, money, career, and work, are but three of 14 unavoidable conditions of life. If you don't think accurately about these conditions and how you'll satisfy each of them, you will likely produce hardship for yourself and your family. So how do you think accurately about these and other conditions of life? Attend the webinar to find out more. Once registered, you'll receive the 2016 edition of Ambitious Living, a 12-page guide offering a blueprint for the eight defining principles, each of which asks important questions to help direct your aims. To learn more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast, or from your mobile phone, you can click the image art for this episode to find a link to register. Okay, back to the show. Connected with someone recently and he called me and we're talking about a possible kind of a referral situation and he said, oh my gosh, Tamara, I have to tell you, like our results are amazing. And I said, that's great. Can you give me an example? And he said, oh, it's, it's just huge. I mean, I can't give away any proprietary information. I said, that's fine. I don't want you to do that. But I just need to understand when you say amazing, what does that specifically, what does that mean? He said, well, I can't do that. But what I can tell you is our CEO just wrote a check for $100,000 to one of our referral partners. He said he was walking in the hallway with it. I said, that's great. Does that happen often or is that a once in a lifetime thing? I think he wanted to kill me by the time we got off the phone. That used to be me. But what I started to understand was, wow, with, with a little bit of discipline and rigor and some transactional competence, that transaction cycle for me has been absolutely game changing. And I'll tell you, you know, when I look at how big the shook has grown, some of the new things that we're doing, how I got onto EO Fire, I have that map in front of me and I look at it and I say, okay, Tamar, don't go from all the possibilities to work in action. Let's just skip it all. It's all the possibilities. Now let's go do all the possibilities. I force myself to go through those steps. And because I think that is part of the reason why subscribership has grown, why we're doing more in sales. I've been fortunate enough to get on Huffington Post and EO Fire. And John, you, I saw that you signed up on the Shook. You can see it in the emails now. When someone signs up, it's an invitation. And then after the invitation, they get more information, which is the presentation. Yeah. So that cycle is in everything that we do and I've specifically when I work on my, most of my work is online and I have to work doubly hard to make sure it's there. Having that transaction cycle on my website has made a substantial difference. Once I initiated that and actually launched it, we went up 17.2% in subscribers. 
And then in terms of keynotes, our close rate, our close rate was high to begin with. So I think it was at 60%. It went up to 72%. I think it's because now I look at it and it's not someone calls me or I call them. It's okay, I'm taking them through the transaction cycle. And this is what it looks like. This is where they are. This is where I am. And here's what we need to do. It's very great. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about excitement. When I look at some of the things that you've written, when I look at your website, when I listen to you, you're very excited, right? You are. You're very excited. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) what do you call yourself again here? You call yourself a... Innovation enabler? Yeah, an innovation enabler. I mean, how sexy is that? That's just like a, that's like a sexy title, right? Sexy and it's, it's like a seduction of one's senses. It's like an innovation enabler, right? But we talk here at Influence College, we talk about excitement and we talk about yeah. the necessity of it, you know, to produce a certain kind of excitement or agitation, a, yeah. a kind of invitation. But also we talk a little bit about the dangers of excitement and that it's not necessarily a good thing. So since we're talking a little bit about optimism and excitement and reality, what have you learned about the dangers of excitement? Well, that's a great question. The thing that stands out for me that I remember in everything I do, which I'll get to excitement in a second, this links to it, I promise, is indifference is our biggest enemy. And I work really hard in everything I do not to allow people to be indifferent. They either need to hate me or they need to love me or the shook, but I'm not going to allow them to be indifferent. In that comes a lot of excitement and how you position stuff out. So here's the challenge with that. Challenge one is some people hate you because what you're saying is, you know, when you bring that level of excitement, like innovation enabler, some people are like, that is the lamest thing. She is not for us. And that's fine. And I have to realize they're not my tribe and that's actually a good thing, but there is that danger of putting some people off when you work in excitement. I say the other danger is it's hard to maintain. You've got a, you know, excitement only lasts for so long and if you can't follow it up with proof and results, you will lose people and you've moved them not it's not just indifference. Now you got to work 10 times as hard to get them back because you have not lived up to your promise that you've given them in the excitement. And I actually had that challenge a little while back, I launched something, uh, an offer to my community with the excitement and the standing out and getting them away from indifference, but I fell short in how I delivered it. So people were not happy with my offer. And in fact, I had to refund like $15,000 because of it. And that was my fault. And I own it and I learned from it and I changed it, but I couldn't keep up the excitement and I should have thought more thoroughly about what I was doing and how I was going to bring that further and how I was going to add the rigor without losing that promise, but I didn't. It's very good. Well, there is the presentation of yourself online, and I mostly don't mean in video because the video experience is a little bit more of the real experience of you. I mean more of the copy. If you look at the copy on your website, the words are seductive words, exciting words, uh, words of possibility and magic and so forth. Yet when I spend any time with you, I'm often left with how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how articulate you are, how transparent you are. Do you find that you have to navigate those two worlds in any way? Do you know that about yourself? My company and myself are very much in the public eye. If you go online, to your point, not just in the videos and the text and you know the, the copy and everything, I am, I am seeped into everything there and people know me because of it it is a challenge sometimes to keep it up Mm -hmm. but it is me i'm not you know it's not a different side of me or a, a false side of me it is me but it's backed up with what you said which is that intelligence and that study and i will just say the only reason people consider me smart is because i spend a lot of time studying my my craft and my world and you know how to transact and innovation and entrepreneurship and that's allowed me to have that. Here's what, here's what I think though, John, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. I think if I couldn't back it up, I would annoy people really quickly because I've got all these people now, you know, selling online marketing webinars, you see it all over Facebook now, all these free webinar for online marketing. And then you get all excited about it because they look amazing. And then you, you get on the webinar and they've got nothing to back it up. So when I think about it, I think I'm going to put that optimism and that excitement out into the world because I, I believe it. It is me and I I want that energy out there in the world and I'm going to back it up. Well, you know, you asked 
my thoughts on the matter. I th- yeah. I think one of the things that I love from the book, The 22 Immutable Laws of, of Marketing or Branding or whichever version you're looking at, is uh, the law of hype. It just simply is, is if somebody has to hype something, it probably doesn't have much substance. Right. I find that as an inventor in my early days that I hyped because I didn't have the competence for certain things. I could only cop an attitude of confidence. But my confidence didn't come from my competence. My confidence came from planting my heels in the ground and copying an attitude of confidence in what I said or what I'd accomplished. But as you said earlier, I find that people who are competent do not need to talk about it, do not need to brag about it, do not need to hype about it. Yeah. And the people that, that do well here in Ojai, since you've been here, Ojai, California is a place of many different kinds of people. And one kind of person that lives in this area are the people that I refer to as stealth wealth. They're people who do not look like the people in, say, Los Angeles who try really hard to look like they live the glamorous life. Anytime I ever see that, to me, it's somebody showing their hand. That's not really how that is at all. I think we can boil this down to the difference between confidence and competence. And one of the reasons that we teach transactional competence is because we're committed that people are, in fact, competent there's no faking it. There's no fake it till you make it. You just simply are competent in being able to live the life that you are committed to satisfying. Uh, that's what I wanted to say about that. Any thoughts on that one? I would say that, so first of all, I love those people because the minute they walk in the room, it's very obvious that they're just keeping up with the Joneses and have nothing to back it up and they don't see it. And it's really sad. We all have those people in our life and, and they're the people in the room who talk the most. You know, that's what I was referring to earlier who have usually done the least. When I worked in New York City, I used to travel to LA quite a bit for work. I'm not sure how, but somehow the Four Seasons, Beverly Hills was one of our approved hotels. So I got to stay there like once a month. And the thing that I learned there, it was the person in the jeans and the tennis shoes that actually was the most successful, not the people rolling in their Lamborghinis with their really expensive clothing. I learned that really quickly being in that environment. I agree with you that it is about competence That's why I I feel so strongly about being transparent and I share my failures all the time with my community and with the world or, and they're not even failures, but things that don't work because I think that's part of building competence is having those experiences. Mm. I want to be transparent out there in the world. So I want to show them the good stuff so they can learn from it. And then I want to show them, you know, the bad stuff that they can learn. I call it the pain and the gain of, of my journey. And I want everyone to learn from that. Why go into the same pitfalls that I did? I think, though, when it comes to, particularly in the online world, there's a difference between excitement, kind of how you're referring to it, and being unique. I think you've got to find a way to have a voice that really stands out and gets people out of indifference. And sometimes, to me, that means shocking them a little bit. Sometimes it means doing the opposite of what everybody else in your industry is doing. Sometimes that means finding ways to surprise and delight people. So I think it's important that whatever business we're in, we remember that we're in a cluttered marketplace, we have a ton of competition, and our customers are indifferent, as you say, they're scattered and they are inundated with media. And if we don't capture them in the first nine seconds, the second time we try to capture them, we have to work even harder because we've already lost their attention. Then the part that I used to really fall short on, back it up with extreme competence, because if you can't, you just become part of the noise out there. That's so beautifully said. I'm going to move on to a different topic here, and I want to get to something I think is quite fantastic about the Shuk. And I also want to hear a little bit more about Launch Street. So here's why I think it's so relevant to the conversation you and I are having, because what I love about what you're doing is, is you're providing a testing ground. There's something about the Shuk that I think is really great because it allows people to do the kind of research, the kind of thinking, the kind of accurate thinking, to deal with the reality. With so many people we work with, they're very excited about their ideas. You see this, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, and don't call my baby ugly. It's perfect. 
Exactly. Very well said. Tell us a little bit about these companies and uh, what you're providing entrepreneurs in the quest to make sure that they're matching optimism with reality. This is, I think, where the rubber meets the road on optimism and reality and transactional competence. So inventors call me and they say, oh, I got to my the best idea. It's this mug and it, you know, warms up your coffee when it's cold and it adds sugar if you, you know, just the right amount and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what does the marketplace think about it? Oh, well, I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, done it yet, but I have 72 pallets in my garage and it's perfect and I'm ready to go. That's usually how the conversation goes. And I say, okay, well, let, let, let's back up. So. Let, let's understand what is really of value to the marketplace. What are they really willing to pay for it? And is this even a good idea? And we, by the way, with some inventors, actually stopped them from moving forward, which was the best thing that could have ever happened to them. So inventors come to us with these products. We then test a certain number, so let's call it 20, that we get out to our curated community of early adopters. So these are people that we know are open to new ideas, so they're not gonna shut down the idea just because it's new. Some people are like that. So they're open to new ideas, they love giving feedback, they fit the target for your product in some way, they're a coffee drinker, they, they're a runner, you know, whatever it is. And they're part of our community, so they're trained to know how to do this and provide feedback. So we get the product out to them, they get this feedback, and a conversation starts to ensue with the inventors on their, web, on their product page. And I will tell you, John, this community is, I'm so in awe of them most days because some of the feedback they give just... It's, you think, wow, there are big companies who pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the same information. And these are people who are willing to do it for free. Just give me the product so that I can test it. But the most important part, I think, is they learn what's working, what's not working, and the true value of their idea before they start to invest money into it. The best feedback was, you shouldn't do this. And here's a different way to think about it. It was a, a vest that had an alarm in it and sound and vibration to keep you awake while you were driving. So the concept in theory was smart, right? People take long drives and you got to keep them awake, got to get them before they actually start to fall asleep on the, at the wheel. The execution was poor and he had no way of knowing that. So everyone he talked to was like, yeah, I love that idea. I love the concept of that. Yeah, that sounds like something I would totally want. But when he got it into the hands of our testers, they gave him all the reasons why it wouldn't work and how to do it better just from testing the product. And he's listened to them, he's changing directions, and he's creating what's more of a clip-on, basically, for the, for the seatbelt versus a vest. But that's accurate thinking. What's not accurate, and this is the trap that so many of us inventors fall into, is we fall in love with our idea. It's perfect. And when people give us feedback, we go, well, they just don't understand it. And we lose sight of, of reality. And what the testing ground does is provides that reality check. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But you know what? As you know better than anyone, when you're armed with that knowledge, you can make smart decisions. When you don't have that knowledge, you're just licking your finger, putting up in the wind, and hoping for the best. It's very, very good. I think I'd like to just take us to the quote that you offered from one of the coaches of the Raiders. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. <laughs> I love the Raiders. So that's a whole other issue that I have to resolve. I know most people out there are like, how's that? How does she love the Raiders? So I'm a huge Raiders fan. I grew up in the East Bay. So that's why just people know I bleed black and silver. But I live in Denver, by the way. So it's a little bit taboo to be a Raiders fan here. And when the game is on TV, my family gets really excited. So we're watching the game. Their first drive is a touchdown. Like they nail it. And we're all thinking, my God, this game is going to be a blowout. The Raiders are going to kill it. Amazing. Then they start to fall apart. They go into halftime and they interview the coaches before they go into the locker room. They ask the coach, what are you going to do? You guys are really down. This is not good. And he said, we have a lot of football to go. And I thought that was the best quote I had heard. It reminded me that, wow, you know what? There's a lot of game to play. There's a lot of transactions to be had. You've got to look at what you've done and look at where you've been, but you got to remember how much is ahead of you still and not sabotage yourself by thinking kind of one play or one quarter is going to make or break it. Very great. Well said. All right. Well, let's go to Launch Street here for a second and, and talk about what that is. So Launch Street is the culmination of years of curating the best content and community to help create measurable success for innovators. What I kept hearing from people is, wow, you've curated this amazing community. Can you bring us together? You have all these pieces of, of content that are going to help us be smarter innovators. Can you pull it all together? 
And after I think being knocked over the head with it the 50th time, I finally said, aha, I have an idea. Because isn't it like inventors to claim everything's our idea too? I got knocked over the head and realized, oh, so we created Launch Street and Launch Street is a membership platform. It's a monthly membership and you get the launch kits and you get the value vault and you get exclusive Facebook groups so you can connect with those other people as well as monthly workshops and webinars. I'm really thrilled. I'm really proud of the people who have already joined because they're already taking the strides to make improvements in what they do and be smarter entrepreneurs and innovators. We're putting the finishing touches on going public with it. I've so far only gone to my community with it. I don't want to use the word excited now. I'm really self-conscious about that word. So I'm going to say I'm <laughs> adequately happy about it. Well, there are other words I know. You have to use enthusiastic. Well, you know, once you get it stuck in your head, it's hard to get past. Like that word gets stuck with you. Um, so, so that's what we just launched. And I want to call out something in there that came from my transactional learning. The value vault is where every month, I review the chatter that's happening on the Facebook page, the Q&A that's coming in, what people are talking about, and I go out and I find the best resources and experts to help solve those challenges. Because I realize that in the membership world, it's all very one way. And what people wanted was they wanted their voice to be heard. And I also know that I don't have all the answers. I got to go find those people. But every month, I'm confident that that will help give them the tools that they need. It's up to them to implement. I certainly can't you know, control that. But so there you go. That's Launch Street. All right. Great. Well, tomorrow it's been just a pleasure to spend time with you, and I loved it. Thank you so much for your time and all of your knowledge. Oh, it's always great. You guys have given us so much, the community, so thank you. As I said, in this episode, we listen in on one of our global membership webinars and a talk by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles on the subject of what we call state of mind, and in particular, how you and I evidence in our transactions our state of mind to other people. There are four states of mind, and in this talk, we'll hear Kirkland talk about the state of mind we call naivete. All right, here's the webinar. When we first started working on recognizing certain states of mind, the word evidence began to become really important for us early on. John and I took a hard look at how to articulate this particular principle. So the first thing I, I wanna to bring to your attention is the word evidence. And I wanna set a grounding context here for this conversation. And I wanna remind you that we are talking about as you engage with another human being in a transaction they are going to evidence some kind of state of mind. And it has been extremely useful for us to aim our thinking at these four states of mind in order for you to begin to observe how someone is approaching the transaction itself at any given time throughout the transaction. So let me first say that when we're talking about state of mind, we are talking about the state of mind of an individual in a transaction, and especially when that transaction is beginning to be confrontive in some way, challenging when responses and reactions are occurring. Human beings will demonstrate in a transaction some form of behavior. They will give evidence to a certain kind of behavior a state of mind, we call it, that is giving way to a certain behavior based on the narrative that they are holding about some condition of life. These four states of mind are extremely useful if you're prepared to observe another individual, a human being behaving, when transactions are underway. Want to continue to distinguish and articulate is a state of mind we talk about quite a bit called naivete. Now, naivete is a term that we chose because it captures so many different ways that people demonstrate and evidence their state of mind. Naivete is, is, a, is a, a, I don't know, it's a slightly more comfortable word for me to use when I'm actually addressing someone in their state of mind. This is a very common state of mind. And we locate people in this state of mind when we assess that they do not have and understand the knowledge required to fulfill on the transaction, but 
they're behaving in some way that indicates that they think they do or they are moving in a way that is dangerously optimistic when they don't hold the skill, the capacity to do so. Mostly what we mean is they don't know it or they do and they're faking it till they make it. This is not a sense of hopelessness that you would find in despair. This, this is someone who is moving as though they know something and you and I both know they don't. They cannot give you the evidence. People will hold this state of mind and you'll hear them demonstrate their knowing. They'll be highly enthusiastic, but they'll be full of mostly general information and yet somehow know that they can make it happen without giving you any specifics for how it can happen. You'll recognize them through their lack of specific evidence as they speak in dogmatic platitudes, arbitrary information, grand declarations and assertions, but they cannot articulate an objective plan, strategy, or specific tactics that they would be willing to commit to that will give you the evidence you need and must be able to hear that they can fulfill on the promises that they are making and asking you to make. And more often than not, they are simply misled by the current. They're speaking the language of the current, but they really don't know. And when you press them, when you press them for specifics, you'll get a biological trigger. They will react. And the way that these people tend to react is by leveling, by attempting to bring you to a certain level. They'll blame others or the situation or this word that is so often used in politics. They'll pivot to misdirect the narrative in another way. Another way to say it is bullshit. Bullshit is a form of, of naivete that is best described by lying. It's naivete, and they know they don't know, but they're producing those narratives anyway. Most of us are naive in some conditions of life or some situations. The difference is those of us who are naive in those situations don't run around and pretend not to be. We're the people who will stand up and say, listen, and I said this the other day, I, I, kind of embarrassingly, I feel like I probably should know what you're talking about, but I don't know what you're talking about. Could you explain that to me? And in many ways, often you'll hear John and I say these, these words. We'll say, listen, I'm, I'm a little naive about that. I know some about it. I've got some general knowledge about it, but I don't want you to count on what I know. I'm naive. Naivete is also a kind of ignorance. Naivete is, uh, some, in some cases, it's innocence. And you've got to be careful in dealing with people who are naive. You've got to be willing to call it out. And when you call it out, when you challenge what people say they know, if they're triggered, and they start leveling, blaming, or pivoting to other situations, if they start to have reactions that are biologically uncomfortable, I assure you what you are dealing with is someone who is naive or they're lying, just out and out lying to you. And this is one, this is one of the reasons to observe politicians. It's one of the reasons to observe people who know how to confront effectively. Naivete is extremely common. The difference that I hope and I am imploring you to make is to be willing to say, I don't know. It's one of the things that we challenge folks when they come to conference. We invite you to say out loud in front of a lot of people on a regular basis, I don't know the answer to that question. I feel like I should know that, I love it. Nathan Havey said this to the conference I was at that was wonderful moment. I was reviewing some of the, what I like to call the game films, right, from the old conferences. And it's this wonderful moment where I had made a big deal about this at the conference, and Nathan Havey stopped for a second, and you could see him dealing with his own naivete. And it was a fantastic moment when, when Nathan just kind of smiled and goes, God, I really want to know this answer. I know I probably should know this answer, but I don't know this answer. It was a wonderful moment. And then later we had a conversation about that, about the power and the impact. And I promise you, at the end of the day, the people in the room will appreciate you and recognize you for being someone that's going to be straight with them about what you do know and what you don't know. And people who are willing to say, I don't know, 
then when they speak about the things they do know, they are listened to with authority. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. In our next episode, we feature an interview with Tim Guest, the Managing Director of Infinite Wealth in Perth, Western Australia. The real problem that my dad had was struggling to find work. The lower middle management tier got wiped out primarily in that that recession. And it took him two years to find work. And a real turning point for me was a day, uh, as a teenager, I did something, upset my dad, not really sure what it was. He, he got angry, he chased me, I ran up the stairs and he collapsed in a heap and he was crying and he kept on apologizing. And it was the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry or apologize. And for me, I think it really brought home how this smart, hardworking man, all he wanted to do was provide for his family. I really got to see the true nature of what financial stress can do to, to people. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to share it with others, you can find it on our website at influenceecology.com or anywhere podcasts are available. We'd love to know what you think, so find us on iTunes to subscribe and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank Tamara for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with her and all the links to website, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This episode is made possible by the work, study, and practice of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly, editing and music by Bellringer Productions, music supervisors, Dashley LeCorps, Marcus Bell, podcast copy and show notes editing and links by Carol Gregory. 